You know, as we've, as we've been um, singing, as we've been talking and sharing and reading the scriptures this morning already, there's this theme that's, that's already been emerging. And it's interesting because part of that was planned and part of it wasn't. I feel like God is impressing upon us this theme just spontaneously through what people are sharing and what people are praying. But, but that theme is, it, it, there's, a, there's a missional nature to it. It's, it's gratitude for what God has done in our lives, His saving grace in our lives to take sinners like us and, and to redeem us, to free us, to make us His children, and then put us into this world to be a reflection of that grace, to be a proclamation that there's a God who saves sinners. And, and to shine for him in such a way that, that our hearts are longing for other people to see and to know and to hear and to respond, right? That we, we want to see this world filled with the Spirit of God. We want to see God's glory everywhere. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what this text is, is really all about. And, and Al just read the end of chapter 17 and you, you get this scene of, of a battle and you're probably going, well, how, Where's the glory in a battle here? But, but uh, you know, there's an there's a important thing that's about to happen here in this, in this text. You know, as, as we've come to pro- probably right at the middle of the book here, um, we, we see a, a key element begin to emerge. Uh, and, and let me go back to where we started. What we're seeing in Exodus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to their fathers, to Abraham, right? He, he, he appears to Abraham. This is Genesis chapter 12. And, and it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a significant moment in the life of, of God's people because it's here that we see God's promise and the purpose laid out. Right? The promise is that God is going to, to make a people for Himself. Right? He, he calls out Abraham and He says, it's your lineage, your line. I'm going to start something here that's going to expand and it's become a global blessing, right? And, and that's the purpose, that the world would be blessed through this people. But there's something more that's said here. It's not just that the world would be blessed. He says, I will bless those who bless you. But he says, I will curse those who dishonor you. Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. So the, the, the purpose here and the promise is, is, is got two sides to it. Yes, he's going to make himself known in the world he's going to make a people for himself and that people are going to both be a blessing in the world but also a picture of curse a a judgment on the world to ultimately fulfill the grand purpose which is to bless all the families of the earth you see that so we have this promise and we have this purpose and and I'm trying to I'm wrestling with that in my mind because we we talk a lot about the fact that that the promise was that the, all the families of the earth would be blessed through this people but I I wonder if if we spend enough time thinking about the meaning of what it means that 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 some will be cursed and as I was processing that this week it just reminded me of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul says of the people of God in the New Testament he says we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
Your purpose as the, the continuance of the people of God is, is twofold. You, you look like something. You smell like something in the world. To those who are being saved, you're, you're an aroma of life to life. And to those who are perishing, you're an aroma of death to death. You're a blessing, but you're also a picture of judgment. And I think that's what this text is here to, to remind us about the role of the people of God in the world. I said earlier that there's three things that are needed to form a nation. That's the promise. We're going to make a nation. And the three things were a people, a land, and a law. Right? Every nation has people, land, and law, or a constitution. And, and we've seen so far the beginnings of a people. The people have been called out of Egypt together. We see this family that has grown from, from a small number to a large number. And, and now they're on their way. They're, they've left Egypt. They're, they're going into the land. So we've got two of the three things beginning to take shape. But it's here that we begin to see now the rest of the book, the third. We're about to get the law. So you'd expect we just sort of jump into that scene. But we don't just jump into that scene. We get this weird moment where there's this battle with the Amalekites, which we just read. And then chapter 18, which we'll get into a little bit, but, but a couple of things happen. You go, why do these things happen? What's the meaning and the purpose of this? And I think the meaning is this, that these, this text we're going to look at today serves as a hinge that's centered on the purpose. What's going to make the people distinct in the world? Is it the fact that there are people? Is it the fact that they have a land? Not really. Those two things every nation around them share. What's going to make them distinct is what's about to come, which is their law. Which is God's law. This is, if they, if they get the law of God and they follow the law of God, if they look like God's intent for them to look, that's what's going to make them ultimately different in the world. That's going to give them a, a testimony in the world. And so I think it's here that we get a reminder of why as they get that law, they have to know what the purpose of being both a blessing because of it and the picture of judgment because of it is supposed to look like so they can live it out properly. So here's the main idea of, of the text here. It's that God's people will be a shining picture of both the judgment of God and the grace of God to the nations as they live according to His law and tell of His rescuing mercy through the Gospel. Okay, God's people are going to be a, a, a shining example in the world of both the judgment of God and the mercy of God as they live according to His law and they tell of the saving grace of His Gospel. Let's take a look at, at the text and I'll try to explain where I'm getting all of this. Uh, the first thing I want to look at is what was just read to you. This, this end of chapter 17, Israel defeating Amalek. And, uh, and I want to show you two significant elements to the story. The first one is the significance of the staff that Moses holds up, all right? And the second thing is the significance of the Amalekites themselves. Let's, let's talk about the significance of the staff. And here's the significance of it. It is a symbol of God's judgment. Look back at verse 9 of chapter 17. Moses says to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight 
with Amalek. Now, why are they fighting with Amalek? Well, verse 8 says that Amalek came and fought with them. So Amalek initiates the attack. Moses responds to that, and he says to Joshua, go pick, us, pick some guys out, go fight with them. And then he says this, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua, you get a group of guys to go fight. I'm going up the hill with my staff. Now, that must have sounded like a really strange thing to Joshua. Maybe you uh, were a kid uh, with a dad who came to you one day and said, you know, son or, or daughter, let's, let's focus on doing a little yard work today. You go get the lawnmower and push. I'll go get the lawn, mo- the lawn chair and I'll supervise. Right? Kind of sounds like one of those. Wait, I'm going to go here and you're going to go up the hill with your staff? What is going on with that, right? But, but here's the thing. The staff was the key. Think about all the ways that we've seen this staff utilized throughout the book of Exodus. This is the staff that became the snake that ate all of Pharaoh's snakes, right? All of the the snakes that his magicians made, this staff ate all of those. This is the staff that God told Moses to use in striking the Nile so that the Nile would turn into blood. And then all of the the plagues that took place after that, so often it was a picture of of the staff and the hand of Moses being raised up over the ground or over the water so that the frogs would come or so that the gnats would come, etc. And every one of those actions with the staff was was a picture of judgment, right? This is God's judgment being executed on the sin of the Egyptians, and it's the staff that represents the judgment power that's being lifted up over them, and when the staff is raised, the judgment comes. And of course, we get to the big one, the parting of the Red Sea, right? What what does Moses do? He, He raises his staff up again over the water, and the water parts, and we have this picture as they enter in, as the Israelites enter in, and then the Egyptians follow them, the water with Moses raising the staff again, falls back in judgment upon the Egyptians, but the Israelites walk through the judgment to safety to the other side. Again, it's, it's done through the raising of the staff. And then we get to the beginning of chapter 17, which we looked at last week as Jorge led us, and this is the staff with which Moses struck God. He struck the rock in chapter 17, verse 6, in a sign that God Himself would absorb the judgment that the grumbling and complaining Israelites themselves deserved. Right? Now it's being lifted up against the Amalekites. And as we see, as, as was read to us, as long as the staff is lifted up against them, the Amalekites are losing Right? Israel prevails in the battle, and whenever the staff falls, the Amalekites raise up and they seem to be winning. So it's this, when the judgment of God is aimed at them, they're falling off. They're being subdued. And when the judgment of God is not, they're winning. That's the picture that we're supposed to get here. It's about judgment. And even this use of the word tomorrow that Moses says in verse 9, tomorrow I'll go up on the top of the hill. It's, it's similar to the judgments on Egypt. Remember back in chapter 8, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. This is God's word to Pharaoh. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And then there are four additional uses of tomorrow in the plague judgments. 
And then finally, we get to the end here of this text. And in verse 14, we see that judgment is indicated as in the explanation of what all of this is all about. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is about judging Amalek. So the picture of this scene, and specifically of the staff in this scene, is a picture of judgment against the Amalekites, similar to the judgment that we've already seen against the Egyptians. Did I make that point clearly enough? Okay, because I just want you to grab that as significant. It is significant. Let's look at... The other thing here that's significant, let's talk about the Amalekites themselves. The significance of the Amalekites, they serve as a symbol of God's enemy. So the staff is a symbol of God's judgment. The Amalekites are a symbol of God's enemy. You say, okay, here we go. We've seen, we're seeing a dust up here. This is this is just what we, this happens all the time, right? Middle East. This is Middle East. This is what always happens. There's dust ups. There's skirmishes. But this is this is not your run of the mill Middle Eastern power struggle or skirmish. This is the beginning of an enmity that that we're going to see go forward here for centuries between the Amalekites and the Israelites, and it's also something that stretches back well before the days of God's people. In Egypt, all right. Who were the Amalekites? They were the descendants of Amalek. Anybody know who Amalek was? If you do, you're probably a Bible student. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Israelites' father is Jacob. Jacob was later named Israel, right? And he had a twin brother named Esau. And when they were born, what does God say? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Right? You have one who was chosen out to be God's people and one who was rejected by God. You have a picture here of the people of God and those who are decidedly not the people of God. You have a picture that, 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 that harkens back to two spiritual kingdoms. This is, this is Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Israel and Amalek, Israel and the Canaanites. Looking forward, it's the, it's the picture of the church and the world. It's, it's a picture of God and Satan. All right? So this is not your, just your, your typical dust up. There, there's great symbolism here. The people of Amalek representing God's enemy. And again, they attacked Israel. Israel didn't attack them. They attacked Israel. Why did they do that? Well, flip back a page and look at chapter 15. This is the song that was sung by the Hebrew people after they crossed over the Red Sea on dry land. And as they're, they're praising God, they're, they're telling about what God has done what God is doing and what God will do. And they say something interesting in verse 13, talking about the way that the, the nations around them will respond. They say to God, you have led in your steadfast love. I'm in verse 13 here. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And the peoples have heard. He's talking about the nations around them now. The Egyptians, the Amalekites and others. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. 
Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. This goes back to Israel's purpose. Israel is a threat to the Amalekites because they represent God. They're the people of God, and the Amalekites represent the enemy of God, right? They represent the distinction between God's rule and rebellion. Through their exodus, remember, the world will know that Yahweh is the Lord. And so when Israel comes out in that exodus, there's a proclamation being made to the Amalekites, this is the true God. It's the Lord. And that's a threat. It's not a welcome revelation to the descendants of Esau. Again, the children of the devil. Exodus 17, verse 16 is translated kind of weird in the ESV. But it's it's more clearly translated, I think, in the NIV. And this is what it says there. Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. It's talking about the Amalekites. Because they have lifted up their hands against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So Israel's existence is therefore a curse to them. Israel represents judgment. The lives that they live in obedience to the Lord, the law that they carry, and I think this is probably something that actually occurred after they got the law, but even if it's a, a foreshadowing of the law that they are about to get, this, this, this uh, existence of theirs as the, the people of God and the law carriers of God represent judgment because their very existence points out the rebellion of the Amalekites against God. And when we lift up our hands against God, He lifts up His hands against us. Right? So here's, here's kind of the, the nutshell conclusion then from the end of chapter 17. As long as God's people live within the midst of the world, of a broken, fallen world, their lives will serve as a picture of the righteousness of God. And as long as our lives serve as a picture of the righteousness of God, they will also then serve as a picture of the judgment of God. The judgment of God against the world. As the world raises their hands up against the Lord, they will often attack those who represent the Lord. Right? As the world has hated me, it's going to hate you, Jesus says. The, the, the people of God are going to live in the midst of that tension because we reflect who God is. And so there will be conflict. There will be opposition as long as the world hates the reflection of God in front of them. So we ought to expect that. Okay, That's a point of application. You should expect that. And we're to walk in obedience through it. Your existence as the people of God stands in opposition to the sin of the nations. And you're to know it, and you're to walk in obedience through it. How do you do that? Well, here at the end of the, of the text in chapter 17, we're shown what they're to do. They're to do it by fixing their eyes on the banner of the Lord. Verse 14 again, The, Mo the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book 
and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. Again, saying the hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, he's saying, know this, tell this to Joshua, I will, I'm always going to be at war against my enemies. And therefore you will too, but, but here's what you're to do. You're, you're to depend on me. Not in your own strength, right? It wasn't, it wasn't the strength of Moses himself that was able to stave off the enemy or, or handle the judgment. Moses couldn't hold it up, right? It wasn't in his own strength. But by looking to the banner of the Lord, the, the, the banner of the Lord, when, when, when you're in battle, the banner holder was the, as long as the banner was standing, it was a sign that you're to keep going, right? The army wasn't yet defeated. And so here's the banner that we're to look to. The banner still waves, looking to the mediator on the holy hill who's, who's judging the world and yet at the same time securing our victory and knowing that the Lord will prevail and therefore, we will prevail, but only by the power and the grace of God. And that's a big part of the purpose of God's people. To live in the world in such a way that in the midst of the conflict with the enemy of God, you stand as a picture of judgment, but you depend on Him. You walk in obedience to Him. You expect that. You look to Him. And let him let your lives be the evidence in the world that the law is genuine and valid, that it's righteous, and that judgment is upon a world who rejects a holy God. You say, okay. So it sounds like, if we're going back to the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Now we understand kind of what the curse part is all about. He will curse those who despise us or who, who curse us, right? We, we, that, this is kind of where that, that begins to make sense. But it only speaks to the curse. What about the blessing? Is that the, is that the nature of our relationship to the world? Is it, is it kind of end there? Is it all about just standing as a picture of judgment against them? This is where chapter 18 comes into play. Let's read it together. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, we've, we've seen him earlier in the book. Now, now he's back. He heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel His people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare, and they went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro, 
rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that He had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the, be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Two significant things I want to point out in this part of the text. So again, we look back to the end of 17. We saw two significant things. The, the staff, which represented the judgment of God, and the Amalekites, who represented the enemy of God. And this, I want to, you to see the significance of Jethro. Jethro's significance is that he here is a symbol of God's mercy. And I want us to focus on the meal at the end, a symbol of God's people. This is quick, but I just want to point something out. Jethro is a Midianite. Midianites were not Israelites. Midianites were, again, outside of the people of God. They were one of the nations. All right? And in fact, the Midianites and the Amalekites were not that different. Geographically, they weren't that different. Ethnically, they weren't that different. From a religious standpoint, they weren't that different. They basically represent the same kind of person. Somebody who's outside of the grace of God, outside of the knowledge of God, and who ought to be representative of an enemy of God. They're very similar in that regard. And yet, here we see that the responses to the work of the Lord through His people are very different. The Amalekites attacked because they saw that as a threat, as a picture of judgment against them, and they didn't like it. They fought back. Here we see a, a, a Gentile, if you will, a Midianite, responding in a way that was delighted. He, he rejoiced. Right? We're, we're, we're told in chapter 15 that the peoples were going to tremble. They were going to melt away when they heard about what the Lord was doing. But here's one of those people who's not melting away or trembling. He's excited. He's thrilled to hear about it. And he rejoices. And what's the result? Verse 12 again. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And he says something interesting. He says, now I know that the Lord is a true God, right? What was the whole purpose of the Exodus? Yahweh said, I, I'm going to bring you out so that they will know that Yahweh is God. They will know my name. And here's one of the representatives of the nations going, I get it. I know. And, and, he, and he brings a, a burnt offering here. His, his name is known, God's name is known to Jethro, a representative of the nations, and it results in bringing a burnt offering, an atoning sacrifice. In other words, I think what we're seeing here is worship based on repentance and faith. This is the true God. And, and if, if, if this God represents judgment against those who don't know Him, then I, I will bring an offering to Him 
an atoning sacrifice to him. I'm, I'm going to put my faith in his mercy and his forgiveness. I think we're seeing here Jethro coming to know the Lord. I think this is like conversion. And if not here, somewhere along the line, Jethro is he's making a profession of faith. And then what happens? The elders of Israel come to meet with Jethro and eat a meal with him in the presence of God. Right? Not a a judgment, but an inclusion, fellowship, unity as the people of God. Totally different response from a very similar kind of person. And I think this is quite possibly the high point in the whole book. Which is kind of a crazy thing to say when you consider all the stuff that's going on in the book and the the plagues and the crossing of the sea and the the miracles. You can say, you know, the Passover, all these things are, they're so big and this seems so small. Just this little skirmish in the desert and then this family reunion that takes place. But I think it's quite possibly the high point because it points to the end goal of God through the Exodus. Again, that His name would be made known among the nations. That Yahweh is the Lord. And that's happening here. And the end result of God's redemptive work in the world is what? We could look to the book of Revelation and see it. That God would host a meal to which the nations are invited. This is the climax, I think, because it points to the climax of the Gospel story itself. The meal around the table in the presence of God attended by members of every tribe and every tongue because of the saving power of God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. A meal around the table where unlike, again, the Passover where the Lamb was on the table, this is a meal where the Lamb is at the table with His people. And it includes anyone in the world who responds to the picture of God's law and people and mercy not as a threat, but as something to rejoice in and to want to be included in by faith. So there's a greater goal for the people of God as they live in front of the nations. Yes, We're a picture of judgment in front of them. And through our law-abiding lives, it's intended to be a symbol of God's judgment, but, but there's something else that should be happening, and that's this. It's that by our story of deliverance, as we testify about how we too were under that judgment, but God has mercifully rescued us out, that we're to be a testimony of God's grace of His rescuing grace, of His mighty power to save. And through that mighty power, the name of God is made known, not just as a judge, but as a redeemer for the eternal joy of the nations. That's the blessing that God's people are meant to be in the world. The law points to a righteous standard that judges the nations, but the rescue, the exodus, points to God's grace to save a people for Himself. And there's one more significant pointer in this text. It's the significance of Moses on the hill. 
Again, how, how, are, how are we going to do this? So, so we're, we're getting this sense of like, okay, yes, that's, that's our missional purpose in the world as the people of God. Yes, we, we represent the judgment of God, but, but we're pointing to the rescue of God. But does that just fall all on us? Again, is that something we do in our own power? No, the significance of Moses on the hill is, is, is there too. He's a symbol of God's Son. And I'm just going to quote from Tim Chester on this. He says this, So this story leads to another hill. And another man with his hands outstretched and another story of judgment. God's people are again liberated through the judgment of God. Their enemies are defeated. But there's an important difference. Moses spread out his hands to dispense judgment. Jesus spread out his hands to receive it. So what's the final conclusion? It's this. Again, remember the, the main idea of the text. That God's people will be both a shining picture of the judgment of God and the grace of God to the nations as we live according to His law and tell of His rescuing mercy through the Gospel. That, that the purpose of God's people is twofold. That we're to make God known both as a blessing to the world, but also as a picture of judgment to the world. And I think what this text does, right before they're about to get that law, is it, it brings balance. It, it helps them to see that what you're about to get, this law, this is what's going to make you distinct. This is what's going to make you stand out as different in this world. You're, you're my people as you live this way in front of them, but, but get the balance. Don't get out of whack. You're not all about war. You're not all about judgment. You're not all about just to go in and show everybody how screwed up they are and hold the staff so that they'll all die. The point is that, that as they rebel against me, you might do that, but tell of my rescuing power and some are going to rejoice. Some are going to want a piece of that. Some are going to want a taste. And they're going to put their faith in me as well because you were meant to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. I think that's really helpful and important application for us to remember as God's people. I was thinking about radiation therapy. I mean, some of you have gone through that or are going through that, and, and uh, it's a tough thing to go through. If you've known anybody who's, who's had cancer and they go through radiation, what, what's happening in radiation therapy? Well, the first thing that's happening is that something harmful is actually being introduced to the body, Right? Radiation is not something that you want in your body. It's, it's, it sort of brings judgment, if you will, upon the body, but it brings judgment upon the body with hope and a desire to save the body, right? You're trying to kill off bad cells so that they'll no longer be able to harm the good cells. So here's the thing. If, 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 if you go into radiation, if you have too much of it, it'll destroy the body, Right? But if you have too little of it, it will allow the disease to overcome the body. So there needs to be balance in that. And the aim in that balance is an aim towards salvation. Right? And that's what we're told here. I was looking at a couple New Testament passages just to, just to bring this to bear on the New Testament church. 1 John 3, verses 12 and 13. Don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and, and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You're supposed to stand out in a world full of Cain's and not be like Cain. You're supposed to live differently. And then he says this, and don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you for it. But then I read Ephesians 6, and it says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So yeah, we stand in judgment against the world, but our, our, our battle's not with people. It's with the power that's darkened the people. And we get out of balance when we focus too much on one side of the story over the other. We get out of balance. If, if, our, if the way that we live our lives and the way that we view the world around us is one of, of just constant wanting to take the staff of judgment and just see God melt them away, which can happen, unfortunately, far too often, with professing believers, you know, I just, I'm, I'm constantly angry at the, at the world around me. I'm constantly angry at the things I'm seeing in the people and the, the sin around me. And I just, I just want to see it all just destroyed. Just, I hate these people. Where's me out? Right? Or maybe we get too out of balance the other way. And it's like, we want to see everybody, you know, come to faith in Jesus, but, but in order to do so, we don't want to put any stumbling blocks in front of them. And so we're not going to live out the law accordingly as a picture of judgment in front of them because we think that might turn them away. So let's be a little softer on you know, our stand of, of God's Word and our stand of living according to holiness as the Lord demands. And, and let's just kind of put out you know, redemption without judgment. Well, guess what? It, redemption without judgment doesn't exist. Why do I need a Savior if I don't feel judged? Right? So we can get out of balance. And, and here's this text reminding us, no. Testify of both the judgment and the grace of God in the way that you live your lives with the aim, with the aim of seeing the nations repent and rejoice in the saving power of God. And if that's the kind of lives that you're going to be able to live faithfully in front of the world, you've got to remember who you are. You've got to remember what you represent, both judgment and grace, because that's your story too. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this, but... Game, uh, was it game five? Cub series? It was looking pretty bleak, right? We were down three games to one. And I even came, I stood up here, it was before game five, I stood up here last Sunday, I had my Cubs jersey on, I told you I was, I was like, this, this much hope, right? But what, what do we hear about that, that uh, locker room afterwards? We heard a story about, about David Ross getting up in front of the club, down three games to one, and saying, guys, don't forget who you are. We're the Cubs, right? We, we've, had, we've had 103 victories this year. We, we've come back and won three games in a row 20 times this year. Have you forgotten? We can, we can do this. Have you forgotten who we are? 
And my wife actually used that to remind me of, of, of something this week, that there's a spiritual principle involved in that too, right? Sometimes things just look so, so bleak and so hard and like, ah, you know, but we have to be reminded of who we are. And that we have a history of seeing the redemption of God. We've, we've come back and come back and come back over and over again by the grace of God that God's, God's purposes in winning the series are not to be thwarted. If we remember who we are, and if we remember who we are, we're going to play the game in such a way that we act like the picture of God in two ways, both the righteousness of God that brings judgment on the world and the testimony of God's rescuing power in our lives that says there's grace and there's victory to be had. We've got to remember who we are. And the exodus here is a, is a pointer to a greater exodus, right? It's a pointer to a greater act of deliverance from sin and death through the death and the resurrection of God's Son. And the climax of that great exodus is an eternal banquet where people from every tribe and every tongue are going to be brought together by the blood of Christ to eat in the presence of God. And that moment will continue forever. Midianite and Israelite being brought together to eat in the presence of God. And it's an awesome thing to behold. And we're given a reminder every week, every time we gather together as His people, even in the midst that's still wrecked with conflict and tension and rebellion, there are little outposts all over the planet of God's people being gathered together coming together around a table that reminds them that this is the outcome of the Gospel. That, that, that all of us here were once Amalekites and Midianites. But by the grace of God and by the judgment of God transferred on His Son instead of us, we are now gathered together as one people around the table. And so when we take this meal, it's a missional proclamation in the world, that there is judgment and grace and we're the evidence of it.